It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson's here. Yes, more woes. And this time, not just Windows 7, Windows 10 2. We will talk about the troubling life of a CISO. If you're one, we have the deepest sympathy for you. And then the trouble with the Internet of Things, including a new Bluetooth flaw named after the son of Harold Bluetooth. It's all coming up next on Security Now. Security Now comes to you from Twit's LastPass Studios. Securing every access point in your company doesn't have to be a challenge. LastPass unifies access and authentication to make securing your employees simple and secure. Check out lastpass.com twit to learn more. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 754, recorded Tuesday, February 18th, 2020. The Internet of Troubles. Security Now is brought to you by Worldwide Technology. Worldwide Technology's Advanced Technology Center is like no other testing and research lab in the world. With over 150 different security services and applications, including OEMs like Cisco Umbrella, and it's virtual, so you can access it 24-7. To learn more and get insights into all the ATC offers, go to WWT.com slash twit. And by FreshBooks, the number one accounting software in the cloud for self-employed professionals and their teams. Seamlessly create invoices from estimates in a flash. Try it free for 30 days at FreshBooks.com slash security now. And by Thinkst Canary. Detect attackers on your network while avoiding irritating false alarms. Get the alerts that matter. For 10% off and a 60-day money-back guarantee, go to canary.tools twit and enter the code twit in the How Did You Hear About Us box. It's time for Security Now, uh, the show where we cover the, late cover, cover, cover the latest security and privacy updates with this guy right here. He's the man in charge at the GRC, the Gibson Research Corporation. I give you Steve Gibson. Hello, Steve. Leo, you have said that 754 times. Holy cow. I don't know. I think that uh, that intro isn't quite as old as the show is. That is actually true. Yeah, I was thinking yeah, the same thing. Yeah. So um, I titled, uh, it, th this was one of those weeks where initially as I like pulled everything together. Nothing really stood out badly until I did some digging into a couple of the stories. And I thought, okay, so we've got two very worrisome IOT things. So this podcast this week is the internet of troubles. Oi. Um, we're going to continue following the continuing agony surrounding this month's increasingly troubled Windows update. In this case, affecting Windows 10 people because Windows 7 people, well, they had their problems in January. <laughs> now it's Windows 10 turn in February. Uh, uh, the monthly fixes have had a tendency to break things that were not broken in the first place. Uh, so we're going to take a look at that. We're going to look at the danger presented by a very popular GDPR compliance add-on for WordPress. Um, also, we're going to take a look, as I was talking to you before we began recording, at an eye-opening report 
about the stresses that are being subjected or that, that CISOs are being subjected to. Uh, it turns out the, the average employment duration is, I think, well, the report says it's 26 months because, I mean, it's just so bad That's being a CISO. The time to breach. <laughs> Yeah, and then it's your it's fault. Your fault. Come on. Yeah. Um, also, today it's Tuesday, as you know. Uh, as as often said, if it's Tuesday, somewhere there is an election. Oh. It turns out that during today, there is a pilot test of Microsoft's new election guard voting system. I had no expectation it was going to happen this quickly. And in fact, it's as a consequence of the concerns over voting security that this thing has just like itself, it fast tracked itself hmm. into, into existence. So we've got some fun things to talk about there. We're also going to briefly touch on a little bit of squirrel news, some spin right news. And then, as I said, take a close look at two newly revealed Internet of Troubles security worries so i think i can promise our listeners another great episode and a completely incomprehensible picture of the week <laughs> yes you're going to explain this, it to us yes <laughs> it'll all make sense when steve is done that and that's actually kind of the motto of the show <laughs> it'll all make sense <laughs> when steve wraps it up our show today brought to you by our friends at worldwide technology uh, out there in St. Louis. In fact, we're going out in a couple of weeks. We're going to have an event out there, and we're still working, trying to figure out how we can do a, a meetup with you. We're going to, I'm excited because I'm going to get to see Worldwide Technologies Advanced Technology Center. They started this about 10 years ago. It, it, you know, Worldwide Technology is an enterprise vendor. They help consult, assemble, put together hardware and software for your business. A lot of customers. In fact, customers generally stay with Worldwide Technology forever. They, they're so good. And they built the Advanced Technology Center because they ne realized they needed a way to pilot uh, new installs, new systems, and they're integrating uh, an existing system with a, with a new product and so forth. And they have spent over the last, you know, 10 years building this thing. It now has half a billion dollars in equipment from hundreds of OEMs. Uh, companies like Cisco, the big guys, NetApp, VMware, smaller guys, disruptors like Tanium and Equinix and uh, Expanse. And you want this because if this ecosystem makes it possible, well, originally it was for worldwide tech engineers to uh, spin up deployments, to do proofs of concept, to test. Uh, and they you get the benefit of all of that, of course. But the other thing they've done, which I think is really exciting, is they've made it an incubator for... IT innovation for you. So you can use it. They have on-demand and schedulable labs that you can use anywhere in the world 24-7. Things like Cisco's ACI segmentation migration, hundreds of other labs representing all the newest advances and the things all you CISOs care the most about, like endpoint security architecture, software-defined networking, network automation, primary and secondary storage and i can go on and on and on that's what we're going to talk about this panel we're doing at wwt is going to all be all about the cloud going forward the future of the cloud uh there's this is what's happening in enterprises moving so fast and in order to compete you need to keep up 
And that's what's so cool about WWT. They really are your trusted partner in all of that. And now, with a lab as a service, which is a dedicated lab space inside the Advanced Technology Center, customers can perform programmatic testing using all that vast technology ecosystem WWT's built anywhere in the world. You don't have to come to St. Louis. I can't. I'm really looking forward to seeing it. WWT's engineers work in these labs every day, testing new equipment, building reference architectures, custom integrations for their customers. It really creates a multiplier effect of knowledge, of speed, and of agility anytime, anywhere around the world for their customers. And when you're using the labs, you get those hands-on labs, but you also get access to articles and studies, all the tools you need to really understand and make a difference in today's fast-paced world. This is something everybody in enterprise needs to know about, and you can find out more, and you can even sign up for access to the on-demand lab platform at www.t.com slash twit. Worldwide technology simplifies the complex at their advanced technology center. Find out more and sign up at www.t.com slash twit. WWT, delivering business and technology outcomes around the world. We thank them for supporting security now. Steve? So I cannot really describe <clears throat> our picture of the week. I can't either. It, um, <laughs> and when it, it was sent to me, I thought, okay, wait a minute. It, it did it. You know how like sometimes photos are rotated 90 degrees. I thought, okay, wait, is, is that the floor or is that the ceiling? <laughs> what the hell is and it? then I saw like the, 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 the drop ceiling with the bars. So I figured, okay, that's got to be the ceiling. So that means that's the wall that, you know, meets the ceiling <clears throat> the the There's, clincher was down was down in the distance there's like an emergency battery backup lighting thing on the wall yeah anyway yeah. So, so this is the upright wall and yeah and, and coming out of the ceiling is a cable bundle and a track a fairly hefty cable bundle it looks like yeah. a monitor mount or something on the wall but then what's this thing sticking out that has its own powered supply and a plug just dropping down to the floor whatever it is it's not pretty no, it's a catastrophe. Um, so uh, that that black bracket that has been attached to the wall yeah. is a is a small. It looks like maybe what maybe like a four U high, right, nineteen inch rack yeah. thing. Oh, I get but, it. <laughs> there was no yeah. room to put the rack unit in the rack. Correct, because the rack that they had <laughs> too was too shallow. It looks like maybe like eight, maybe eight inches oh, deep or something. Yeah. So some, uh, dare I say, enterprising techie <laughs> thought, well, that's not a problem. I'll j and this must be a switch that's or a hysterical. you know, it's some some sort of an it appliance, could be a, UDP, a network appliance. It's it all sorts of all, all sorts of things. Well, it's it got be. all of that networking plugged right, into it, right? And it's so switch, you know, right? yeah. yeah, it's got to be like a big switch. Um, so whoever did this screwed it to the rack <laughs> so that it's sticking out with no support out into the air. Which of, and then, of course, the power plugs into the back of it. So the power cord is hanging straight down. It's like in the walkway path. And I think this thing, this, this other beige thing, must be a power, uh, a power uh, outlet box. Because it looks like there's maybe 
something plugged into it. I mean, it just is just like it's a anyway. So our our topic, one of the things we're going to talk about is the dilemma that CISOs are in. And if a CSI a CISO did this, well, I guess they deserve whatever stress they're feeling <laughs> because this looks like it's going to just this is just jerry rigged. They put it it's in backwards. It's just crazy. Really yeah. is bad. That's hysterical. So don't try this. Not only at home, but <laughs> at work, especially at work. Anywhere yeah, that Never looks like do could, this. I could see that in my house, but not at work. No. Yeah. So, uh, and we have had some pictures of wiring closets from hell in the past. So you know we're like, <laughs> like we're the, the the network cables are used to hang socks that are drying and and similar things. So anyway. Uh, it turns out that the Windows 7, you don't have permission to shut down Windows, is not restricted to Windows 7 after all. Windows 10 users have also been receiving the same permission denial. We have a, a, a picture of a Windows 10 dialog saying, you don't have permission to shut down, to, to shut down and restart this computer. Crazy. Um, so, as are many weird things that only affect some subset of Windows users when they like when they're triggered by a Windows update, this also, this whole problem, this whole you don't have permission to shut down Windows, whether it's hitting a Windows Seven user or a Windows Ten user, turns out to be a subtle interaction with some third party software which, of course, explains why it only affects a percentage of the population. In this case, the culprits are background services installed by Adobe's Creative Cloud. Uh. Bleeping. Yeah. <clears throat> so it's only people who have Adobe's Creative Cloud that in some weird way collided with a Windows update uh, at the beginning of the year to, to do not cause a denial of permission to shut down and restart the computer. Bleeping Computer provided some, some comprehensive coverage of the situation. They wrote, Windows 10 users are reporting being affected by a bug that prevents them from shutting down their devices without logging out first, an issue that we previously, we the industry, thought only Windows 7 customers were experiencing. <sighs> Yep. On February 6th, Windows 7 users started reporting and countering, you don't have permission to shut down this computer. Since then, they wrote, this, this error has been reported by several Windows 10 users too. One of them saying that he saw the error pop up on a recently installed device running Adobe Creative Cloud, as initially reported by some guy named Gunter Bourne. Others also confirmed that the issue was impacting their Windows 10 Home Edition, device, home edition devices, as well as multiple Windows 10 installations in an environment where Windows 7 devices were also experiencing shutdown issues. Naturally, because in that environment, Adobe Creative Cloud had been installed both on Windows 7 and Windows 10 systems. They wrote, there are currently hundreds of user comments in Reddit threads, as well as on the Microsoft Answers forums and Twitter. 
While the shutdown issues aren't as widespread on Windows 10 as they are on 7, all reports point at the same error and the same underlying bug being behind the problems. Then last Thursday, on February 13th, a Microsoft employee posted, We've identified and resolved the issue, which was related to a recent Adobe Genuine update (sighs) that impacted a small number of Windows 7 users. Adobe has fully rolled back the update automatically for all impacted customers. No action is needed by customers. If you're experiencing the issue, it will be resolved shortly via an automatic update from Adobe. This kind of makes uh, sense because it felt like something, some background process was blocking, yep. right? Right, right. Uh, and then finally, uh, Bleeping Computer added, while Adobe has already rolled back the update for Windows 7 customers, Windows 10 users are out of luck until the bug is also acknowledged for their platform and a fix is provided by either Adobe or Microsoft. So it turns out that what Adobe, and I guess at some point Adobe will do that, but they hadn't as of uh, as of when this most recent report was rolled out. However, Bleeping Computer said until then, you can disable, well, first of all, you can log out and then shut down, although that's kind of a pain. You can disable the Adobe services which are triggering the bug, which, you know, go into uh, manage uh, windows into services. You'll then find Adobe Genuine Monitor Service, Adobe Genuine Software Integrity Service, and Adobe Update. You could just halt those, stop them, disable them, whatever, and then, you know, uh, and then later uh, turn them back on after Adobe fixes the problem or after you learn that it does. <laughs> In yet another problem, uh, bizarrely, Windows 10 one-button PC reset turns out to fail after this month's Patch Tuesday. Uh, the the regular monthly roll-up is, is KB452, for two four four, and so it turns out, and, and I, you know, this is not likely to affect lots of people. the The Windows ten one button PC reset for those who have never encountered it is a means. It is something that's offered in Windows ten, which, if for some reason you want to just return your Windows ten machine to like factory settings, meaning. A, a, a complete reset of the system. You know, there is like a, a Windows recovery partition compressed and hidden on the on a Windows 10 machine. And by jumping through some hoops and you can get to it through menus, I, I've had occasion to do it myself, um, you can get to this option that allows you to completely return your system to sort of like new condition. It turns out that Microsoft introduced this problem by resolving a possible security vulnerability that might be introduced by third-party UEFI boot managers, which as a side effect turned out to kill Windows 10 one-button PC reset. Yes, Leo, I can hear you, and I feel the same way. It's like this whole thing is just beginning to collapse under its own weight. So Microsoft has pulled that 
update and has no plans to reissue it. Um, as Microsoft explained it, quote, you might restart into recovery with choose an option at the top of the screen with various options, or you might restart to your desktop and receive the error, there was a problem resetting your PC. Anyone experiencing this problem is advised to simply remove the update from their affected Windows 10 machine. So again, if they're like, you know, they just, they, they rescinded it, but it's, it's unlikely to affect that many people. If it does, you can remove that update. But get this one. This one is causing some serious concern. Ever since this Patch Tuesday, some unlucky Windows 10 users, and I've not seen any forensics on this yet, they're reporting that another of the updates in the roll-up is causing an additional problem that is very worrisome. According to reports, a bug in, in this case, it's KB4532693, hides their user profile and all of their user data. This is such on, a nasty one. Yes. Because, I mean, if you, I mean, you know, Microsoft is selling Windows 10, well, or pushing it to people to who are just, you know, yeah. normals. Yes, exactly. And so it's being reported on Microsoft forums, Twitter, Reddit, tech sites, including Ask Woody, Bleeping Computer, and Born City. Users are reporting that after installing the standard monthly update roll-up, they're just doing their normal, you know, Microsoft makes you do it now. So, okay, fine. And, you know, it doesn't take that long for a, a, a regular monthly update. However, after doing this, they can no longer view or access their original Windows 10 profile. In other words, according to these reports, after the update, users are left logged into a blank default Windows 10 profile where all of their previous data is missing. That's <laughs> scary. Now, it's not actually missing. You just logged right. into the wrong well, it's profile. Not, it's Thank not goodness. deleted, essentially. Right. Yeah. Right. So all installed apps desktop wallpapers, desktop files, downloads, you know, everything that, you know, for those who don't know, that, you know, your whole profile is like what makes you different from someone else logging into the same machine under their own profile. The, the you know, the profile is your, you know, your per user account. So as you can imagine, it's quite unsettling to just update Windows as you're told you should, and then all your stuff is gone. Last, when, last Wednesday, Woody Leonard tweeted, multiple reports that the Feb cumulative update for Win 10 resets the desktop. Custom icons missing, background set to Windows logo, and would not recognize the established logon account. He asks, are you seeing the same? And then sent a link where presumably people could respond. So, as you said, Leo, the good news is nothing was permanently deleted. The data's not gone. It's only been hidden. According to a report on Bleeping Computer, the bug is caused by a faulty, as I said, KB4532693 installation procedure. The bug occurs when the Windows Update Service 
creates a temporary profile for use by the installation procedure, but then, whoops, forgets to remove it after finishing the update installation. When the update finishes, this temporary profile remains the one that users are logged into and all their stuff is gone. Um, reports indicate that the original user profile folders are still available on disk, but that they've been renamed with a .000 or a .back extension. And while it's technically possible to recover these sequestered profiles by renaming and relinking them, the steps required are error prone. And as you said, Leo, this is, you know, many people are just normals. <laughs> you know, they're like, uh, where'd all my stuff go? Oh, so yeah. I've had calls now, like this and it's uh, yes. terrifying for them. Yes. Because it's so not it clear it's not gone. Right. Exactly. Well, it looks gone. And it's right. like, you know, any normal person would go, all my stuff is gone. Right. So it turns out that the best solution is to uninstall the faulty update that's part of the roll-up, KB4532693. Just uninstall it. Multiple users have reported that removing the faulty update restores their old profiles. So, you know, all that said, it's obvious that not all Windows 10 users are impacted by this bug. Uh, so, yes, most users will have no problems at all. Who knows what's going on? All of my Win 10 machines are current with the February roll-up, and I didn't see that happen to me. But it clearly is happening to many people. So, so for, for you know, as we know, uh, given the problems that Microsoft is now continually having every month, uh, the, the advice would be don't immediately jump on one of these roll-ups. What that means is you may be planning to. The good news is if this does happen to any of our listeners, everybody who hears this will know, okay, all is not lost. Nothing is lost. Uh, you can just uninstall this 453-2693 and you'll get your stuff back. But boy, Microsoft, uh, I don't mean... Yeah, I don't know how we explain the, the continuing problems that Windows is having. Um, leaving them alone for a while. Uh, there is a very popular GDPR cookie consent WordPress plugin, which has a critical flaw. It's of some concern because more than 700,000 active installations exist of this problem. Um, so anybody who's listening, uh, and if you know anybody who has a WordPress site and you may, you may know that they've got this GDPR cookie consent plugin installed, it needs to be updated to version 1.83 or later with high priority due to a serious vulnerability. As this name implies, it serves as an aid to making websites compliant with the EU's GDPR regulation, uh, but uh, since its February 10th update, it has also been critically, I'm sorry, until it was just updated on, on the 10th, so a little over a week ago, last Monday, uh, a week ago Monday, uh, 
until a week ago Monday, February 10th, it has been critically flawed in a fashion that, if exploited, could enable attackers to modify the site's content and inject malicious JavaScript into any of these 700,000 active installations. I have... I don't use it myself on my WordPress blog, so I wasn't able to verify that whether this has automatic update technology as part of it. So what I would recommend any of our listeners, if you're using, if your WordPress site uses this GDPR cookie consent plugin, make sure that it is at 1.83 or later. Um, uh, after the developer was notified of the critical flaw by the people who found it, the plugin was removed from the WordPress.org plugin directory saying pending a full review according to the plugin's directory page. Uh, and now the new version, 1.83, was released by the plugin's developer, Cookie Law Info, uh, as I said, Monday before last. The vulnerability stems from improper access controls in an endpoint used by the WordPress plugin's AJAX API. AJAX, uh, for those who don't know, is the acronym for a technology which allows JavaScript running on a page to independently initiate its own outbound HTTP and other connections for retrieving data uh, for use by that JavaScript. Uh, for example, I use it myself on the Squirrel login page. That's what creates that magic where without even touching the login page, after you authenticate with your smartphone, the login page you're, that is like there that is present spontaneously updates to show that you're logged in. What's happening is that there's a so-called Ajax query running on that page in the background, which is periodically pinging the 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 site of the the site that you're logging into's server for a new URL for the page to jump to. Um, Ajax scripting uh, cannot ask for anything from anywhere, thank goodness, or we'd be in real trouble. It's constrained by same origin rules. So it can only request additional information from, the, from a site that meets the same origin restrictions, typically just the site that, that, that provided the page. So it's just sort of like it, it allows um, – sophisticated actions it's you know it's behind it, it's behind the scenes of many of the web applications that we've now grown to take for granted but in this case this plugin has a method underscore construct which is used by initializ uh, initializing code in the plugin for creating new objects it constructs the objects and unfortunately this fails to implement required security checks. Because of this, that AJAX, that AJAX endpoint, which is only intended to be accessible to administrators, is allowing visitors 
to the blog to perform a number of actions that can compromise the site's security. It accepts three different values from the AJAX API. Two of them, um, one of them is save content data and the other is autosave content data. It turns out can be leveraged for exploitation by an attacker. The mistakenly accessible save content data allows admins to save the GDPR cookie notices to the database. However, since the method is not checked for authentication, um, any visitor to the site can also modify any existing page or post, meaning most of the website. And as is so often the case with HTTP, it's possible to delete or change the page's content, injecting content, um, then allows, you know, uh, reformatting of text, local or remote images to be uh, obtained, as well as hyperlinks, uh, hyperlinks, short codes. You could embed a frame that then pulls content from somewhere else, get up to all kinds of hijinks. Um, and then that second problem, that the autosave content data, is used to save the GDPR cookie info page in the background while the admin is editing it. Um, and it turns out it saves it into a sensitive database field, skipping any validation checks. And again, this opens it for abuse. So not surprisingly, the researchers who discovered it urge WordPress plugin users to update immediately. And it was that language that concerned me that this might not have an, an auto update mechanism. Uh, I may have some additional news on that by uh, next week from people who do have it and have some experience with it. But, you know, 700,000 WordPress sites is not nothing. And this allows lots of at least defacement of WordPress blogs and probably much more, uh, you know, uh, uh, malicious uh, modification. So uh, make sure if you're using that, that you get it updated. Leo, I'm going to take a sip of coffee okay. while you uh, tell us about our next sponsor. And then we're going to talk about uh, the dilemma of CISOs in the workplace. No fun being a CISO, and I'll tell you that these days. Our yeah. show today brought to you by FreshBooks. I know you love FreshBooks. I hope you love. Do you you don't know? Oh, let me tell you, I love FreshBooks. I started using FreshBooks way back when, when I was going to uh, Toronto to do call for help up there, and I had to send them an invoice with all my expenses and my bill and everything, and I would always put it off. Hated doing it. Had to do you know fire up Word and Excel and convert it to Canadian dollars. All that. Amber told me about FreshBooks. Man, that thing transformed my life. It made it easy to do the invoices. Handles. Any currency you could conceivably want to use, I mean, all of them, it makes it easy to get the invoices out the door faster, and it makes it faster to get the payments back in the door because once you start using FreshBooks, you can automatically take payments online. A client can get your invoice, click a button, pay you with a credit card or an ACH if you're in the U.S., and you get your money on average twice as fast as you would if you didn't use FreshBooks. That's pretty darn nice. FreshBooks makes, really makes it easy to do accounting. I don't like to use the A word <laughs> because, you know, who wants to do accounting? FreshBooks makes it easier to do business, letting you focus on the things you want to do and taking care of all the money stuff for you. It's actually a great way to keep track of clients. The FreshBooks app lets you 
automatically uh, time hours. Uh, you can also do it on the website. Uh, so you keep track of time. You can have different uh, prices even for the same client within different projects. You can uh, put all your clients together uh, in your FreshBooks app. So you've got access to everybody, create customized proposals that look really, really good. You can give your client uh, the ability to approve a project with just a click. So really, it's kind of streamlining the whole process. You can view and respond to client feedback about an estimate. You can preview estimates and quotes before you send them. You can easily add in discounts. The thing that's about FreshBooks, it's it's a web app, so they're always adding new features. In fact, every time I do this ad, there's new features in here. You can send estimates in the currency of your choice. You can create and email an estimate from anywhere within the FreshBooks mobile app. That's the other thing I love about FreshBooks. It, you can take it on the road. That mobile app does everything. It, you, your team members can use it. You have permissions, so you can say that you have access to this, but not that. Uh, and you always know, and this is the thing I really found valuable, besides the fact that it just made these great-looking invoices, I always knew at any given time what my receivables were, what, my, what was paid, what my expenses were. I even knew whether I was making money or not at any given time. And if you're a small business, you know, you don't usually know that till tax time, right? You get a color-coded breakdown of all your spending, summary of all the most recent activity. You can generate easily at any time a profit and loss statement, a sales tax summary report. This will be very handy because tax time's coming up, right? Uh, accounts aging, payments collected. If a client opens an invoice, you immediately get a ping. They can't say, oh, I didn't get your invoice because you know. And by the way, I, I really want to emphasize this security now. We always talk about this privacy and security is top priority at FreshBooks. 256-bit SSL, of course. Uh, it's cloud-based, but it uses industry-leading secure servers. They do everything to make sure that they're there for you. They're taking care of your data while you're taking care of business, and they're making your life better. I love FreshBooks. Take the guesswork out of planning with FreshBooks estimates and reports. Here's the deal. If you go to FreshBooks.com slash security now, FreshBooks.com slash security now, and uh, you'll get a 30-day trial, but you got to say you heard it on security now in the how did you hear about us section. At least do that for us, okay? 30-day free trial, FreshBooks.com slash security now. I'm telling you. It saved my life. It'll save yours. Freshbooks.com slash security now. 30 days free when you say security now was uh, where you heard about it in the uh, where'd you hear about us section. Thank you, Freshbooks, for your support of Steve and security now. Now fully caffeinated. Recaffeinated, yes. So it turns out uh, the average tenure of a CISO uh, a C-level information security officer, you know, like a CEO and CFO and so forth, is just 26 months. Wow. Due due to high stress and burnout. Yep. Um, it turns out that the vast majority of interviewed CISO executives, 88% of the 800 that were interviewed, report high levels of stress. One-third report stress-caused physical health issues, and half report mental health issues. Um, we've touched on this in the past. Um, you know, information security, cybersecurity is still a relatively new thing. It's still seen as more of a necessary evil by corporations than as an obvious profit center 
like sales, marketing, or R&D, not to mention the fact that the high priests of information security appear to speak in a strange language that no one <laughs> that makes no that makes no sense to any of the other C-suite executives who are the ones after all who established the budgets and the schedules so as a consequence most companies are still not ready to truly embed CISOs into their company culture and into their day-to-day operations they're sort of like you know is that like that guy who hangs out in the wire closet so today CISO jobs come with low budgets, long working hours, a lack of power on executive boards, a diminishing pool of trained professionals that they're able to hire, uh, and a constant stress of not having done enough to secure the company's infrastructure against cyber attacks. Uh, There's also continuous pressure due to new arising threats. I mean, look at what we talk about every week. This is this stuff is real. You know, like, oh my God, you better not have remote desktop protocol exposed. And, you know, if you do, it's real trouble. Um, it's funny, as I was thinking about this and looking at the and reading over this report, it it really struck me that this is like the problem with asymmetric warfare. You know, it's it's not like like the British lining up in a row in very brightly colored uniforms with their muskets and like, okay, now we're going to, you know, uh, when, when we say go, both sides are going to charge each other. You know, this is asymmetric. The, the, you know, this is bad guys all over the world trying to pry their way in through a nook and cranny. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad I don't have responsibility for a large organization as I've, you know, back in the, when we were talking about the, the Sony hack, Leo, you know, I, I said very clearly, I don't think it's possible to secure an organization like that. So imagine having the responsibility for the security of a major firm on one's shoulders. I just, I, I, I can't imagine it. So anyway, it turns out that through the years, CISOs have often pointed out the problems with their jobs and the stress and damage that those jobs inflict upon them and their families. But there's been no conclusive study up until now to support what were essentially these broad assertions. Last November, Nominet, uh, they're an internet and DNS security firm that we've talked about before. The name's familiar to me. I forgot exactly what their product is, but N-O-M-I-N-E-T, they independently surveyed 800 CISOs and executives from companies in the U.S. and the U.K. to explore and examine this topic and to determine how much of a role stress plays for CISOs across the industry. The survey's results painted a gloomy picture about one of today's most in-demand jobs. I mean, it's no longer the case that a company can go out, can go without somebody who is, whose like job is to focus on the security of the company's internet and networking infrastructure. So what the report found, I have a link to the entire report uh, in the show notes. Actually, I think I do. I don't see it here. Um, uh, 
Oh yeah, back at the top of, of, of this topic is there. So what the report showed, 88% of CISOs reported being between moderately to tremendously stressed, 88%. Nearly half, 48%, said that work stress has had a detrimental impact on their mental health. 40% of CISOs said that their stress levels had affected their relationships with their partners or their children. 32%, essentially one in three, said that their job stress levels had repercussions on their marriage or romantic relationships. The same, 32%, said that their stress levels had affected their personal friendships. 23% of CISOs said that they had turned to medication or alcohol as a means of dealing with the stress from their job. Nominet, who did this, who prepared the report, said that even when they are not at work, Many CISOs feel unable to switch off. As a result, CISOs reported missing family birthdays, holidays, weddings, and even funerals. The report said they're also not taking their annual leave, their sick days, or time for doctor's appointments, which contributes to physical and mental health problems. Because, of course, if you never feel like you have enough time in the day, if you, to get the work done that you need to get done, yeah, you're going to keep pushing those things off. Nominet said that while investigating the cause of CISO stress, they found that almost all CISOs were working well beyond their contracted hours by an average of 10 hours of extra time per week for which they were not compensated. Furthermore, many were under pressure from their boards. Almost a quarter of those interviewed said that boards didn't accept or understand that breaches are inevitable. So what we know of that is, because we've often talked about this, that there's a culture clash. There's those who don't get it and the CISO who does get it and is, is not try, he's not making excuses. He or she is trying to explain this. Um, so the board said they don't understand that breaches are inevitable and the CISOs reported that the, that the boards would be holding them personally accountable for any security incidents. So you can imagine how that affects stress levels. Nominet said the 29% of CISOs who answered the survey said they'd be fired in the event of a breach while 20% said they'd be fired anyway, even if they were not responsible. So the answers explain why most CISOs don't last in their jobs more than an average of 26 months and why 90% of those surveyed were willing to take pay cuts if they could reduce stress levels. Nominet said CISOs were willing to give up on average, and the reason this is a weird number is that it's an average of, 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 the, of the responses, on average, $9,642 per year, so almost ten dollars per year on average just to reduce stress levels and improve their work-life balance, which many CISOs said they had problems with. 
Nominet's numbers may seem staggering to someone looking in from the outside, but of course they come as no surprise to anyone working in the field who realizes what a mess this is right now. Although Nominet, uh, the Nominet study only surveyed high-ranking CISO executive jobs, the problem is widespread across the industry. InfoSec, or cybersecurity, has a habit of grinding through employees due to the rigors of the job. They said low-level InfoSec positions, like threat analysts or pen testers, penetration testers, are just as bad in terms of stress, if not worse, primarily for the same reasons. A constant fear of new incoming attacks, long work hours, low pay, and very little job satisfaction. So <laughs> I realize I'm not doing a lot to sell everyone here on on the glories of of being in charge of internet security for uh, for your organization. Um, within the InfoSec community, signs of the growing problem of stress and burnout leading to mental health issues have been mounting. There are some efforts underway to raise awareness about InfoSec job stress levels, like this report, burnout, along with the mental health issues arising from ignoring this problem. Um, there's also been a rise of so-called mental health hackers, an online community that's been attending cybersecurity conferences on a regular basis now in order to help raise a awareness of the topic, that it's like it's a real thing. And I don't see any obvious solution to the dilemma other than time, frankly. Uh, the problem ultimately is one of respect. It's impossible for other C-level executives to respect what they do not understand. Traditionally, as we know, nerds and geeks have enjoyed sort of keeping their dark arts a secret. But being understood is vastly more valuable than being mysterious. So part of the job should be to explain and train other C-level execs so they can better understand what the job is all about. And, and, of course, fortunately, time and additional experience with the realities of cybercrime are, are going, regardless, to slowly bring about an, a cultural attitude change. We know that that's in process now. When you have, like, last year's massive, widespread, in-the-popular-press coverage of ransomware attacks, uh, there's no way that that you know C-level board executives are not perforce becoming more aware that that this is something happening. And so, yeah, when it happens to them, they realize it's not an isolated incident. It's you know there is an aggressive pressure for this to happen. So. Unfortunately, as we also know, this sort of change takes time. Um, so I guess my advice to CISOs would be to, as much as possible, try not to carry the entire organization's cybersecurity responsibility on your own shoulders. I'm sure that's easier said than done, but try. And also try to retain a sense of perspective as much as possible. In the end... It is just a job, and your life is yours. Try not to give it away. So 
Yikes. I mean, it's it's nice to see a report like that that helps to put some numbers to a problem that we sort of say, oh, yeah, boy, you know, being in charge of security is is uh, stressful. Well, yeah, it's really stressful. Um, one thing that's helping to take some stress out is Microsoft's Microsoft's election guard, which, as I mentioned at the top of the show, this being a Tuesday, is being used for the first time today. Uh, as the saying goes, if it's Tuesday in the U.S., there's an election somewhere. And in this case, that somewhere is the small town of Fulton, Wisconsin. What's making history there today is that the residents of Fulton, Wisconsin, will be electing representatives for the Wisconsin Supreme Court using voting machines for the first time powered by Microsoft's Election Guard software. Um, these are the first voting machines deployed in any U.S. election that will be running Microsoft's new voting software, which we've been keeping an eye on on the podcast since the summer. Recall that Election Guard is a fully open SDK that Microsoft has made available at no charge on GitHub. GitHub.com slash Microsoft slash Election Guard. The project's goal is to create voting software that uses strong encryption, actually massively cool encryption. It's built by some of the world's top cryptographers, and it allows it to be, thanks to being open source, extensively audited for bugs. I'm I was very surprised when I saw this news because it was just in May of last year, 2019, that Microsoft announced the existence of this for the first time. They then first demonstrated their prototype voting machines to a small audience of the Aspen Security Forum last July. Then they released the first Election Guard code to GitHub in September and opened a bug bounty program the following month, last October. Today's pilot test is deliberately small, expected to have only a few hundred voters casting ballots. But this will provide voting machine vendors, as well as quite anxious U.S. election officials, with a real-world test of the software to see whether it's worth a shot and ready for wider deployment. Um, before today's event, event, Tom Burt, who is Microsoft's VP for Customer Security and Trust, thus in charge of this, said that using Election Guard won't be complicated since Microsoft designed the software from the ground up for ease of use, accessibility, and with a user-friendly interface. He explained that the voting experience is a three-step process. First, a voter will select candidates on a touchscreen and verify their choices. Then the voter will print and review for accuracy a paper ballot and simultaneously receive a separate tracking code. Finally, the voter deposits their ballot into a ballot box for counting. And presumably, this is a electronically scannable paper ballot. But as we've described, there's a lot of wonderful, quite advanced crypto technology happening behind the scenes. 
after casting their ballot, each voter receives that tracking code. They are able to use that tracking code on an election website to verify that their vote has been counted and that the vote has not been altered. In other words, that tracking code lets them see their votes. The tracking code, however, does not reveal the vote, so it won't allow third parties to see who voted for whom. Election Guard employs a homomorphic encryption scheme, which was developed in-house at Microsoft under the watchful eye of senior cryptographer Josh Benelow. Counterintuitive though it is, this homomorphic, I have a hard time pronouncing that, homomorphic form of encryption allows the counting of individual votes while never decrypting them. They stay encrypted, yet they can still be counted. What? Yeah. The Election Guard SDK also supports third-party verifier apps, which are able to independently check that the encrypted votes votes have been counted properly and have not been altered. The verifier apps were created for use by voting officials, the media, or any third party interested in the voting process and in in adding their own verification to it. And election guard machines can also produce as as in the as, as in today's case paper ballots as a printed record of their vote which voters can then place inside traditional voting boxes just like old-fashioned ballots. And finally, Election Guard supports voting through open accessibility hardware. Uh, Apparently, Microsoft has some Xbox-based controllers that uh, are able to be used. So, Are you joking or are you serious? No, I'm serious. (laughs) They're they're Xbox-based controllers, yeah. It's not running Uh, on Windows, is it? Uh... Can't be. I don't it's know open what it's source. It can't be. Well, it, it could be open on source running on. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, given Microsoft. So the voting machines being deployed to being being deployed deployed today in Fulton were built by Voting Works at Voting.Works. And Leo, if you go there, you will like what you see. Their homepage is exactly what we would want to see. It states. Democracy is a choice. Voting Works is a nonpartisan nonprofit building a secure, affordable, and they said delightful voting system. It's delightful. Our voting machine creates paper ballots that voters can directly verify. Our risk-limiting audit software, which of course is based on what Microsoft has done, ensures votes cast on any paper-based system will be correctly tabulated. Our source code is available on GitHub. You can help by making a tax-deductible donation or joining our team. And VotingWorks is not alone. Other voting machine vendors, including Smartmatic and ClearBallot, have also announced partnerships with Microsoft to build election guard-based voting machines. And a fourth group, Dominion Voting Systems, is also exploring the use of Microsoft's SDK. 
I think this is a perfect storm outcome since once officials see how this works, what it means for the systems to be open and auditable, and all of the new features that this system offers, no one who isn't doing this will continue being viable. This makes the welcome and long overdue end to proprietary closed voting machines, I think, just a given. And good riddance to, you know, I, I want to say Diebold or Diebold. And Diebold is welcome to produce election guard based machines of their own. But they are going to have a hard time, I think, in the future selling anything that doesn't use this software. We need this. I mean, this has to be the way it's being done moving forward. So, you know, big, big bravo to Microsoft for for doing this, putting it out there, giving it away, making it open. And to all those companies that have jumped on it and said, hey, we see the writing on the wall. We need to support this or we're not going to be able to sell our stuff in the future. So, yay. Isn't that cool? Yeah. It uses TypeScript. Yeah. I, I'm guessing, yeah. It might not require Windows, though. It might might be able to run it on something else because it looks like it's all web technologies. So, nice. Yeah. Well, if, if it's secure, Python. Nice. Yeah. Hmm. Very cool. Yeah. Um, I did want to note that we've uh, we've added an implementation for Squirrel to the growing list of Squirrel implementations. We now add a general purpose pure PHP implementation for uh, I guess it's Laravel. The PHP framework, uh, L A R A Laravel, yeah, Laravel. Yeah. So there is now a Squirrel implement, a pure PHP uh, Squirrel implementation for Laravel. Uh, it's up on GitHub, and uh, there, I have in the show notes a, a link to it, uh, and also the some some uh, a thread over in the the GRC forums. Uh, I am at work on Spinrite. Uh, I'd have no, of course, it's going to be a while before I have any deliverables. Um, I've just rebuilt the free DOS kernel. Uh, back when I stopped working on Spinrite, I had had to tweak the free DOS kernel a little bit because free DOS just assumes that when it, when it boots up, uh, all of the drives that it sees, it's going to be able to understand. Well, it doesn't understand the uh, the GUI, you know, the GUID uh, partition format. It only understands the older MBR format. And, of course, one of Spinrite's next features will be the ability to operate on any drives. What happens then is that is the FreeDOS Free tries to essentially log on to all the drives it sees and it freaks out in a very ungraceful manner. So I had previously implemented a new config.sys option, skip init. You just put skip init equals one in the config.sys for DOS, and it no longer tries to initialize all the drives. Um, I'm, I found out that uh, it was a little tricky to rebuild FreeDOS because one of the things I lost is, the, is compatibility with 16 bits when I went to a 64-bit Windows unlike my old XP machine that was still, still able to run 16-bit code, uh, I've overcome that hurdle. And just actually before the podcast, I rebuilt the FreeDOS kernel. So uh, anyway, we're moving forward, and uh, I will uh, keep our listeners uh, updated. There is a page 
which the people who are participating over in GRC's news groups know about. Uh, I'm not ready to make it widely public because uh, I, I, it'll just generate too much traffic and too many questions at this point. Uh, and we need I need to to keep running everything through uh, GRC's news groups and not have Greg and Sue uh, submerged in like, how do I do this and how do I do that questions anyway. But if anyone is interested in participating, uh, there is an active discussion now underway over at uh, at the grc.spinright.dev news group. Uh, and you can figure out how to get there by going to grc.com slash discussions. Uh, that's the the page that explains about our news groups. Um, I actually revved my favorite uh, newsreader for Windows. It turns out it broke at the beginning of 2020. Uh, Gravity was first written in the late 19 <laughs> the late 1990s, mm. but it is my absolute favorite newsreader. Back then, they added a sanity check for any headers in incoming postings deciding that if they were in, if they appeared to be older than 2020 then they must be bogus so of course well sort of a variation on the y2k problem right so at starting january 1st uh date sorting of threading broke and so the good news is gravity was released to the open source community and now i'm now maintaining uh a a, a fork of gravity uh, that adds that and a number of other features that I have felt were missing for years. Uh, and so there's news of that over at grc.com slash discussions for anyone who's interested. So lots of fun stuff happening. And Leah, let's take our last break and then di dig into the Internet of Troubles. <laughs> Indeed. This is an yeah. IoT device that uh, is no trouble at all. It's your Thinkst Canary. A Yay. Yay. A uh, uh, a uh, honeypot that is easy to configure, take you no time at all. And I'm just looking at my Canary tools right there, uh, my page. And that's what you want to see with the Thinks Canary, no new alerts. How often do we uh, hear about advanced persistent threats, hackers that are on a company's network or a government network or Equifax for days, weeks, months at a time, and no one even knew. No one even knew. It's kind of, normally, it's kind of hard. I mean, that's that was the whole point of Cliff Stoll's book, The Cuckoo's Egg, was to figure out, well, where is this guy coming from? What's he, do What's he doing on our network? Well, boy, Cliff would have loved these. The Thinkst Canary. It's an easy thing to set up on your uh, network. In fact, I have my canary sitting right here. I'll just show you what it looks like. It's a little black box. Looks like an IoT device. It's got an Ethernet connection, and uh, that's about it. Uh, power, I guess, and that's about it. But boy, let me tell you, this thing—you <laughs> sprinkle a few of those on your network, and uh, it doesn't look vulnerable. It looks valuable. It looks like they're well. I've you can see I've set mine up to look like a Synology backup, a backup NAS. I even named it Backup NAS. You can, when you configure it, you can tell it. What services to run? In this case, FTP. Uh, I've got a web server and a file share and SSH turned on. You can choose what kind of device it is, what its MAC address is. I mean, this thing, it can be anything from a Windows server to, uh, in my case, it's a Synology uh, NAS, 
to um, a Linux server, Windows 8, SharePoint. You can make it an IIS web server, Mac OS X file share. It goes on. Cup service. You can even make it a SCADA device from Siemens or Rockwell or Hirschman. And once you choose that, let's uh, let's say it's a, uh, oh, I don't know, a VMware ESXi uh, server. You choose the stack fingerprint, what OS you want it to look like, what the MAC address should look like. You can use the VMware pref prefix, create your own suffix. You can have port scan detection turned on. Uh, I'm going to turn it off. Uh, but you could have it on. You could have DHCP, web server, turned on or off. I mean, you even have a login skin that looks just like VMware Synology. Why would you want that? Well, you can learn something about the bad guy attacking it from the login they use. Is it an employee's name? The passwords they try? How much do they know about our network? It's really great. And when you get alerts from your canary, they roll them up into a single actionable alert instead of just, you know, Lighten your lighten your uh, your your uh, your pager up like crazy. It is easy to set up. It'll just take you minutes, and no more do you have to think. Well, this is this is for the CISO who's stressed out. That's one less thing you have to worry about. Is there anybody on our network that's got to keep you up at nights? Is there? And how would we know? Well, if you've got a canary, <laughs> you would know. Thanks has been in the security game for more more than twenty years. They've they've trained companies, militaries, even governments how to break into networks, and they've used everything they know about that to build the canary. They can think like hackers, and so they've built something that is totally desirable to hackers. Thinks canaries are very popular. If you go to canary.tools/love, you'll see all the tweets from all the CISOs all over the world with just nothing but praise for their Thinks canaries. They're deployed on all seven continents. Some uh, small businesses have a handful of canaries, so I'm not going to tell you how many we have. That's that you know. That's part of the part of the fun. You finding them yourself. Uh, <laughs> of course, the minute you find them, I'll know. Uh, some big banks have hundreds, maybe even thousands of canaries. It's very affordable too. I'll give you an example pricing. If you go to canary.tools, C-A-N-A-R-Y dot tools slash twit, seventy five hundred bucks a year. Get you five canaries, your own hosted console. You can see we have here ours right here. Upgrades, support, and maintenance. And if you use the code TWIT in the How Did You Hear About Us box, you get 10% off however many canaries you buy. 10% off for life, forever. And you will always want to have canaries. Like the canary in the coal mine, sitting on your network, ready to alert you. You can have alerts by email or text. You can have console alerts. You can have it go to Slack. There's webhooks. There's syslog. They have a full API. I mean, you can you can be alerted in any way you want. I think you're going to love your things, canary. I know you will. It makes me feel good to know we've got them on our network. If you're not happy, you can always return your networks with their two-month money-back guarantee and get a full refund. So you have 60 days to see if you like the Canary. I think you will. Visit canary.tools slash twit. Put twit in the uh, offer code section, or I guess it says the how did you hear about us box. Just put TWIT. That's all you need to say. They'll know. And you'll get 10% off for life. I think this is an absolute must. Thanks Canaries. Go to canary.tools slash twit. Don't forget the... Uh, the offer code, the how did you hear about us code is twit. Thank you for your support. Thanks. Thanks for protecting our network. Now back to Steve. Yay. So uh, <laughs> it turns out that IoT 
light bulb vulnerabilities are not such a joke after all. Um, our listeners know that I often joke about having our internal networks hacked and attacked by something as ridiculous seeming as a light bulb. I chose light bulbs, I guess, to receive that abuse over the general lack of attention to IoT security because they're pretty much the dumbest, lowest rung of the ladder and the least fancy IoT device we have. Well, turns out that the extremely popular Philips IoT light bulbs, the Philips Hue IoT light bulbs, uh, or in this case, actually the bridge that's part of the Philips Hue system, well, and the light bulbs themselves, are able to, in combination, expose our internal Wi-Fi networks to bad guys. Um, they, the Hacker News had some good coverage of this. They, uh, they explained, they, they began by saying, there are over 100 potential ways hack hackers can ruin your life by having access to your Wi-Fi network that's also connected to your computers, smartphones, and other smart devices. Right, we don't want bad guys on our Wi-Fi network. They said whether it's about exploiting operating system and software vulnerabilities or manipulating network traffic, every attack relies on the reachability with, between an attacker and the targeted devices. In recent years, they wrote, we've seen how hundreds of widely used smart but insecure devices made it easier for remote attackers to sneak into connected networks without breaking Wi-Fi passwords. In the latest research shared with the Hacker News, Checkpoint revealed a new high-security vulnerability affecting Philips Hue smart light bulbs that can be exploited over the air from over 100 meters away to gain entry into a targeted Wi-Fi network. The underlying high-severity vulnerability, which is tracked as CVE-2020, 6007 result resides in the way Philips implemented the Zigbee communication protocol in its smart light bulb. This leads to a heap based buffer overflow. Whoops. So, okay. As we know, Zigbee is the widely used mesh wireless technology that allows each device in a Zigbee group to communicate with any other device on that network. Uh, and it's widely used. It's the protocol built into tens of millions of devices worldwide. Uh, the Amazon uh, device, the home hub device, I'm <laughs> reluctant to say the name because I don't want to set them off. Uh, Samsung's SmartThings, the Belkin uh, Emo, and many more. Uh, lots of devices use Zigbee. Uh, the Checkpoint researchers said, through this exploitation, a threat actor can infiltrate a home or office's computer network over the air, spreading ransomware or spyware by using nothing but a laptop and an antenna from over 100 meters away. They also confirmed that the buffer overflow happens on a component called the bridge, which is the module that receives remote commands sent to the bulb over the Zigbee protocol from other devices like a mobile app or the Amazon Home Assistant. Due to its severity, that is the severity of this problem that Checkpoint found, 
uh, they have not re- revealed any technical details, um, nor are they providing any proof of concept for the flaw in order to give users some time to apply patches. But we have a blog from Checkpoint. Uh, of course, they couldn't resist saying the dark side of smart lighting uh, as, the, as the title for this. They wrote, with the help of the Checkpoint Institute for Information Security at Tel Aviv University, the researchers were able to take control of a hue light bulb on a target network and install malicious firmware on it. From that point, they used the light bulb as a platform to take over the bulb's control bridge and attacked the target network. They, so they said, first, the attacker controls the bulb's color or brightness to trick users into thinking the bulb has a glitch. The bulb appears as unreachable in the user's control app, so they try to reset it. The only way to reset the bulb is to delete it from the app, then instruct the control bridge to rediscover the bulb. Apparently, it's that action of the rediscovery that allows the bulb to then attack the bridge, which has just rediscovered it. They wrote, the bridge discovers the compromised bulb and the user adds it back onto their network. The hacker-controlled bulb with updated firmware then uses the Zigbee protocol to trigger a heat-based buffer overflow on the control bridge by sending a large amount of data to it. This data enables the hacker to install their own malware onto the bridge, which is in turn connected to the target business or home network. Malware then connects back to the hacker and using a known exploit like Eternal Blue or whatever, they're able to infiltrate the target IP network from the bridge to spread ransomware or spyware. So, you know, this is a class, a cla- classic get-in and then pivot attack. So the bad guys take control of the light bulb, install their malign firmware onto it, make the light bulb go crazy so that its owner thinks, what the hell, it's gone nuts. The owner deletes the bulb, re-adds the bulb to the system, and in that repairing process, the bulb is able to infiltrate the, the shared hub, get its malware then onto the hub, and the hub is now in a privileged position being part of the Wi-Fi network in order to, to, um, to, 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 to exploit the, the internal network from its vantage point. Uh, and, you know, and as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, wow, you know, all this from somebody who wants to have Philips Hue smart light bulbs um, and control them uh, using uh, wireless technology. This research was first disclosed to Philips and Signify, who is the owner of the Philips Hue brand last November, so a few months ago. Signify confirmed the existence of the vulnerability in their product, and after about two months, they issued a patched firmware version. So anybody who has Philips Hue bulbs are going to want to take note of this. You want to make sure this is the firmware you're using. It ends in 4040. That's the easy way to – it's firmware 
40-40. And they do over-the-air um, updates, so the chances are you already do have it. You don't have yes, to do anything. You want, exactly. Um, uh, I was curious about that, so I wanted to make sure that that was done. And there is meethue.com. Checkpoint said, in a joint decision with Signify, we decided to postpone the release of the full technical details of our research in order to allow Philips Hue clients to have enough time to up to safely update their products to the latest version. The full technical details of this research will only be published in our research blog in the upcoming weeks. Stay tuned. So anyway, I was curious to know, as, as you said, Leo, they are, there is auto update uh, to, to verify that there are apparently are two bridges. There's a version one bridge and a, which is a rounded shaped bridge and a, and a, well, they said round-shaped bridge, and a version 2, which is a square-shaped bridge, uh, and that's the one that supports the Apple HomeKit. Um, and they wrote on their page, if you don't want to miss any improvements on quality, security, or performance, and you want your Hue system full, your, your Hue system fully compatible with the upcoming new Hue products, please be sure that you enable automatic updates for your Hue system in the Hue app. That's under settings, software update, automatic update. And I presume that's the default setting, right, Leo? Yeah. Leo that yeah, it's actually, like, I should you know. check. That's what we've been saying, but um, I should check just to make sure. Yeah, and, and on January 13th of 2020, so last month, almost a month ago, they said firmware 1935144040 for the version 2 bridge they said we, we regularly update yeah. your Hue bridge to improve improve the performance and reliability of the system. My bridge this is update, up to date and I, I didn't do anything, so yes. Good. This update includes a patch for a security vulnerability in the Hue bridge version 2. Make sure so, it says all your lights are powered on to get them up to date. It can take up to one hour per light or accessory to download, and lights may briefly turn off while updating. <laughs> Wow, well, that's cool. What a world so we live I, in, I, huh? I know. Can you believe it, Leo? It's like, okay, you know, turn on the lights and like wait an hour. Yeah. I mean, and I'm not surprised because it's, you know, it, it's going to be a slow, it's a low power, right. uh, you know, bandwidth constrained protocol. And they're having to receive a firmware update through Zigbee. So. It's yeah, going to take a while. while. Yeah. But, but um, you know, I'm glad to know that the light bulb itself, not just the bridge, can be updated. I, I, that's a question I had, yeah. and I'm glad you yeah. answered it for yeah. us. Yeah. So, And yay. the weird thing is this was a problem earlier. They f didn't patch it correctly, apparently, and so it came back. Whoopsie. But, uh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, you should automatically be updated. And if you, for some reason, turned out, turn off auto-updates, well, you might want to turn those back on. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the big takeaway here, and this perfectly factors into our next topic, our final, our final discussion, uh, the so-called sway-and-tooth vulnerabilities, which have just been uh, disclosed, the utter importance that anything you have, which is IoT, has an upgrade path. I mean, if I, I, I know that I, I always say this. There's, there's typically some reason to bring it up every single week, but it is crucial that we have that. So, sway and tooth. Uh, the sway and tooth vulnerabilities 
are a set of more than 12 newly discovered and disclosed vulnerabilities. And I notice I said more than 12 across a wide range of Bluetooth devices. Unfortunately, many of which will never be updated. I know. More than 480 individual products have been identified that are affected by this. These allow for, among other things, full device compromise. Only 12 of these vulnerabilities have been disclosed so far since some Bluetooth vendors, as you might guess from Sway and Tooth, this is about Bluetooth, some Bluetooth vendors have not yet released updated SDKs, so more disclosures will be forthcoming. But let's back up a bit. First of all, I know everyone is thinking Sway and Tooth. Uh, the etymology of Sway and Tooth is not as immediately obvious as our many other named vulnerabilities. In this case, Sway and Tooth was formed from the names of Swayan Forkbeard and his father, King huh. Harold Bluetooth. Oh. Yeah, King Harold was the Bluetooth, yeah. So it's a Bluetooth's King. son. <laughs> Turns out that King Harold Bluetooth, of course, yeah. being the namesake of our widely used Bluetooth technology, uh, he was exiled... Mm. by his upstart son, Swayan, Don't you know? who yeah. revolted against his father, exiled King Harold, and shortly thereafter, the king died. Oh, no. So, yes, Swayan Tooth. The discoverers of these vulnerabilities wrote that they, quote, envision that if Sway and Tooth-style vulnerabilities are not appropriately handled by BLE, Bluetooth Low Energy, vendors, then the technology can become a breeding ground for attackers, which may in turn lead the Bluetooth technology to become obsolete. Uh, I doubt that Bluetooth is going to become obsolete, but this is going to be a serious problem. Their paper, Sway and Tooth, Unleashing mayhem oh, over Bluetooth. <laughs> oh, no. I, lo mayhem? I love that. Oh, I love man. the word may mayhem is one of my favorite words. <laughs> mayhem. That's just that's such a great word. Uh, unleashing mayhem over low tooth blue energy. I've got a link to the disclosures that are posted on GitHub. A link to their 11 page PDF, which is a partial disclosure because they still have not heard from some of the Bluetooth vendors. They, they start off their paper explaining, Sway and Tooth captures a family of 12 vulnerabilities, more under non-disclosure, across different BLE software development kits of seven major system-on-a-chip SOC vendors. The vulnerabilities expose flaws in specific BLE SOC implementations that allow an attacker within radio range to trigger dreadlock, dead dreadlocks, deadlocks, crashes, and buffer overflows, or completely bypass security, Bluetooth security, depending upon the circumstances. Sway and Tooth 
potentially affects IoT products in appliances such as smartphones, wearables, and environmental tracking or sensing. They said, we have also identified several medical and logistics products that could be affected. There was, there was some one from Medtronics that I saw. As of today, they wrote, sway and tooth vulnerabilities are found in the BLE SDKs sold by major SOC vendors. And so when I was reading this, I was hoping these these were going to be kind of obscure, never really heard about them, don't know who they are, so not a big deal. Uh -uh. TI, NXP, that of course is is the, used to be Philips, Cypress, Dialogue Semi, Microchip, ST Microelectronics, and Telink Semiconductor, all major suppliers of Bluetooth SOC, system on a chip devices. By no means this list of SOC SOC vendors is exhaustive, they wrote, in terms of being affected by sway and tooth. We have followed responsible disclosure during our discovery, which allowed almost all SOC vendors to publicly release their respective patches already. However, a substantial number of IoT products relying on the affected SOTs, SOCs for BLE connectivity will still need to independently receive patches from their respective vendors as long as a, a firmware update mechanism is supported by the vendor. Sway and Tooth highlights concrete flaws in the Bluetooth low energy stack certification process. We envision substantial amendments to the BLE stack certification to avoid sway and tooth style security flaws in the future. We also urge SOC vendors and IOT product manufacturers to be aware of such security issues and to initiate focused effort in security testing. A proper classification of the vulnerability set is presented in the next section. And I'll just, I'll mention briefly, they've got crash, where vulnerabilities in this category can remotely crash a device by triggering hard faults. They said this happens due to some incorrect code behavior or memory corruption. For example, when a buffer overflow or Bluetooth low energy reception buffer occurs. When a device crash occurs, they usually restart. However, such a restart capability depends on whether a correct hard fault handling mechanism was implemented in the product that uses the vulnerable BLE SOC. Second classification, deadlock. Deadlocks are vulnerabilities that affect the availability of the Bluetooth low energy connection without causing a hard fault or memory corruption. Usually they occur to some due to some improper synchronization between user code and the SDK firmware distributed by the system on a chip vendor, leaving the user code being stuck at some point. Crashes originated from hard faults if not properly handled and can become a deadlock if the device is not automatically restarted. In most cases, when a deadlock occurs, the user is required to manually power off and power on the device to reestablish proper communication. In other words, a deadlock kills the Bluetooth low energy device without the user 
interceding and shutting it down and powering it back up again, which, of course, still leaves it to uh, uh, prone to reattack. And finally, security bypass. This vulnerability is the most critical one, they wrote. This is because the vulnerability allows attackers in radio range to bypass the latest secure pairing mode of Bluetooth low energy, i.e. the secure connections pairing mode. After the bypass is completed, an attacker in their in within radio range has arbitrary read and write access to the device's functions, functions which are only intended to be accessed by authorized user. So, user. so yes, a complete bypass of BLE Bluetooth security, essentially by 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 forcing a pairing of a malicious device with the Bluetooth device. Uh, this led to a raft of CVEs, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Yep, all 12 of them are there, uh, affecting different of the devices in different ways. They have in their report a, a table of vulnerabilities and SDK versions of the affected system on chip devices. And they're listed, I'm looking at Cypress, at TI, at ST Micro, uh, at uh, NXP, at Texas Instruments, Microchip. I mean, they're all there. Um, so the problem we face here is the nature of the Bluetooth consumer device chain. Um, we're talking about the suppliers of the original silicon way at the start of the chain. They have this silicon. They provide a software development kit where the engineers who are then customizing the system on a chip, integrating it into their solution, are using the Bluetooth software stack that was provide, provided by the system on a chip vendor, the BLE vendor, uh, and which has ended up being – it gets burned into the firmware of the product which is to say that every single Bluetooth device from these companies has these vulnerabilities. And the sad truth of today's supply chain is most of these will never be updated. By far and away, most Bluetooth-enabled devices are not our mainstream smartphones and, for example, home hubs or the Philips Hue hub and bulbs, which I'm, I'm glad to find out were updated. Um, they're not, most Bluetooth enabled devices are not part of an active ecosystem. And notice that you have to have some way of talking to the device. I mean, the, our smartphones and our, on our, on our home hubs and things like the Bluetooth, well, those are tied into Wi-Fi, which are tied into the Internet that gives them a means of getting themselves updated. But we've got Bluetooth stuff all over the place, which doesn't have a means of getting connected to the Internet. Most of them will never see a firmware update. And even if one was available on some, what, Chinese website vendor retailer somewhere – how would we, the user, uh, ever know that it was even there? So imagine some random Bluetooth low-energy-based corporate or residential alarm system 
that was purchased through Amazon from typically these days a Chinese vendor that used a Bluetooth low energy chip from Cyprus, TI, NXP, microchip, uh, or apparently any of the other still not even named vendors. We know that original manufacturer doesn't care about after sales support. You bought it, it was cheap, good luck. Uh, no after sales support is even offered. So that alarm system is now highly unlikely to ever receive a firmware update. It works, yes, but it will also be forever vulnerable. Forever is the key word. Forever vulnerable to wireless proximity attacks that will eventually be made fully public. And in the specific case of an alarm system, it doesn't need to be vulnerable to the least common of those attacks, which was the full security bypass. It might be sufficient for an attacking burglar's purpose to create a deadlock so that it is unable to sound the alarm. But if a security bypass can be found, even more damage could probably be done. And we've all seen science fiction where, for example, as with Neo at the start of the Matrix, some lesser skilled individuals are purchasing some advanced hacking technology from him, a more highly skilled hacker. I've always regarded this sort of world as more fanciful than real. That is the idea that anything, anything can be hacked for a price. But it's becoming increasingly clear that the way things are going, the fundamentally insecure way that we are now cavalierly and casually purchasing, deploying, using, and relying upon technology can be hacked and in cases like this will be forever known to be hackable. This really does suggest a brave new world where anything could be hacked for a price. You know, and like imagine the phone rings and, and the hacker says, hey, what's up? Oh, you want to bypass a Chimera 412 home alarm system? Sure. Piece of cake. Those use the old Cypress 2313 BLE chip that its manufacturer never updated. The hack for that's been around forever. But mine adds a few extra touches. Transfer one-tenth of a Bitcoin to my wallet, and once it's there, I'll shoot you a script that you can run on any rooted Android smartphone that'll completely and silently shut down any Chimera 412. You don't think that's happening? Probably is. Yeah. In, in some places, yeah. probably already I don't think is. It's that You're right. Fetched, really, you know, there's yep. money out there. That's the, that's that's the world we are in. Yeah. Yes, yeah. the knowledge is there. Hackers are there. There, we know that there's an underground world. We now have a means of transferring uh, uh, funds in a way that is uh, essentially untraceable. Um, wow, I mean, I Leo. think most hackers are honorable. Believe it or not. Uh, but I think that we, we've heard that uh, organized crime has started using 
uh, hackers for hire. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, there's, all it would take is a small percentage of the total hacking community to be well. Prominent. And my point is, it's not just big things like you know RDP right. servers right. That, that we can even we, you know we we're able to count those. You can't even count right. the number of Bluetooth low energy devices that are now floating around the world being used and which are now known to be vulnerable and are never going to be updated. That's right. Hmm. Wow. Mm -hmm. This podcast is going to get more interesting. <laughs> I don't know. See how it can. Hey, <laughs> I, we are doing a little party. I can make it more interesting. If you're going to be at the RSA conference in a couple of weeks, uh, our sponsors, the, uh, the namers of our beautiful studio, uh, LastPass, are having, cool. as they have in years past, they're having an event at this great uh, place called Bourbon and Branch in San Francisco. It's a, it's a, it's a speakeasy, and you have to know the password to get in. You know, and it's not swordfish, and you get in, and uh, <laughs> there's secret rooms and stuff, and the great drinks. And we would love to see you there. I'll be there. Lisa will be there. A lot of our staff will be at Bourbon and Branch at the speakeasy. It's February 26th, so eight days from today. A week from tomorrow at 7 p.m. I can't tell you what the secret password is. I don't know it. But if you RSVP, it will be sent to you under secret cover. Ah. Go to twit.to slash RSA last pass 20. That's the URL shortener we use, twit.to. Twit.to slash RSA last pass 20. And uh, say, but only if you can be there. You know, some a number of people are going to just say, I just want to know what the password is. It's not that interesting, trust me. It's, you know, it's going to be simple. But if you can be at the party, we'd love to have you. Uh, open bar and everything. February 26th, 7 p.m., Bourbon and Branch in San Francisco. If you're going to be at RSA. I wonder what's going on uh, uh, in the long run with RSA. Because, you know, IBM uh, Platinum Sponsor dropped out. I'm just curious. It, I guess it's everybody's watching uh, COVID-19 to see... Well, is it going to get worse or is it going to get better? Yeah, and, and you guys were talking about that recently. I think you're right about about you know, this really putting a chill on on physical attendance yeah, at, yeah. At, at conferences. Shut down Mobile World Congress pretty good. Yeah, uh, so and far, we know that, a lot of people and we, know, and we know that. And we know that Apple just announced that they've they've got a, a profitability problem because right. they can't get their stuff That's out right. of China now. That's right. But so far, uh, RSA is still going strong. And if you're going, I would love to see you. On the 26th. Steve, thank you so much. Steve's home on the net, grc.com, the Gibson Research Corporation. That's where you'll find all the stuff that he does, including Spinrite, the world's best hard drive and maintenance utility, now being updated as we speak. Uh, you, you can also uh, find lots of free stuff, including this show, 16 kilobit audio for the bandwidth impaired, 64 kilobit audio for those of you who like the rich stereo experience. We also have, uh, he has uh, carefully written transcripts so you can read along as you listen. That's grc.com. Steve's on the Twitter at SGGRC. If you have a question or a comment, he accepts DMs. And of course, you should follow him to see what he's up to. We have uh, copies of the show audio and video too at the website, twit.tv slash SN. And, of course, you can get it on demand uh, anytime. Just go to that website. We do the show Tuesdays, 1.30 Pacific, 4.30 Eastern, 21.30 UTC. So you can also watch us stream it live for the unexpurgated version. That's at twit.tv slash live. 
both audio and video there. And of course, the best thing to do, it would help us a lot if you would subscribe in your favorite podcast application. Um, that just sends them a signal that people like this show. Maybe they'll feature it. It helps us. So uh, subscribe, and that way you help you too. You'll get a copy of it the minute it's available of a Tuesday evening. Steve, that uh, concludes this thrilling, gripping edition of Security Now. We'll see you next time. Ciao. Ciao. Security Now.